Handel lived an incredibly long life for someone who lived when he lived. So he was able to compose over a long period of time, you know, 1685, 1759. Um, people just didn't live that long. I mean, what was what was Mozart when he died? 30, 33? 30, yeah, yeah. Really? Very young. Um, that young. Beethoven was early 50s, late late 40s, even though he looks much older in every depiction. <laughs> every bust you see, he looks like he's old, you know. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Him Partial, the podcast where we talk all things church music. I'm Monet Funka. And I'm Cara Devereaux. And today we're kicking off a short series on Handel's Messiah with special guests DJ Bulls and Dr. Aaron Rice. We're looking at the man behind this epic piece. We'll be discussing how Handel was instrumental in forming the music of an era and we will be analysing why his music has stood the test of time. But today, the 28th of March, is the very last day you can enter our fun Easter giveaway. Head over to our Instagram, at himpartial, to enter for a chance to win Man of Sorrows, King of Glory, with the humiliation and exaltation of Jesus, Mean for Us, by John T. Rhodes. That giveaway is happening exclusively on Instagram, and like we said, ends today, midnight GMT. Also, before we dive in, in this week's bonus clip, we ask our guests if Messiah should really be sung at Christmas or not, but only newsletter subscribers get to see that content first. If you are listening and haven't signed up, go to impartial.com and do so today. We were very excited to have DJ Bulls back on, and we're excited that um, Dr. Aaron Rice is also joining us. Their enthusiasm is in. Infectious. Yes, yes. We were already looking forward to this series, but their their kind of like excitement and enthusiasm about the whole thing has just made it so much more fun. Mm-hmm. And we can't wait to share with you all the great stuff that we've been learning. Yeah, we we have this song slated to talk about on the lead up for Easter for months and months and months. Um, and we were really fortunate to have DJ and Aaron uh, volunteer their time to school us basically <laughs> um, to to experts really on this song um, and and what I will say that's different about this episode is that it really is um, it really is more academic and I don't mean that in a boring way like oh here we go I mean like they're really schooling us on the history of in this episode um handle himself and just kind of the context in which he grew up in and I just find it so fascinating and yeah yeah there was there's a lot that I learned as well I was actually surprised because there were things that they mentioned like musical terms and I was like oh no wait I do remember that Mm -hmm. um but yeah there was just so much interesting things and handle himself what a guy um But yeah, rather than talk about it, we'll let you listen. So without further ado, here's the episode. DJ Bulls is a familiar face. He has joined us on the podcast before when we spoke about Trinitarian hymns. He's a hymn expert and doctoral student. He has served for almost 20 years in the Churches of Christ and now serves as the Worship and Communications Minister for the Glenwood Church in Tyler, Texas. We also have Dr. Aaron Rice joining us. Dr. Rice serves as tenured Associate Professor of Music, Director of Choral Activities, and Coordinator of Music and Worship Leadership Studies at Shorter University. 
He received his Doctor of Musical Arts in Church Music and Choral Conducting at Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary and is a member of the American Choral Directors Association. DJ and Aaron, welcome to the show. Hey, y'all. Hey. <laughs> I love the nice Southern greeting that you guys are giving us. It shows uh, how far apart we are in the world. <laughs> us being way over here in Scotland. And, um, I mean, we yeah. have accents. The hey y'all gives it away just a bit, just a bit, the hey y'all. So yes, as we were saying before we started recording, we're really excited to talk about um, Handel and his Messiah. Um, But we thought this episode, we'd kind of maybe focus on the man behind the piece. So we just wanted to ask you guys, can you tell us um, before, actually, before we get into Handel, can you tell us a little bit about your background with music? and how you came to know and love this piece. Sure. So I really did not have a lot of music uh, education growing up. Uh, Honestly, in elementary school, we had about six different music directors through my entire five years in school. So it was a dramatic uh, change whenever I got to middle school and was invested in with uh, my band director and, and uh, choral director. And I really was exposed to a lot of things and I got passionate about music. And uh, then I went through a phase of, uh, of um, contemporary Christian music, you know, long hair, guitar, <laughs> holes in my jeans, mother of pearl buttons. Whoa. It was, it was something. <laughs> and I had a conversion experience and started wearing bow ties at that oh. point. Um, whenever you got to college, um, So no, uh, but uh, whenever I became an undergraduate student, I was exposed to so many things, major choral works with orchestra, um, lots of Renaissance motets and that sort of thing. And was really just blown away with the wide expanse of music for voices. Mm -hmm. And um, my freshman year, I got to sing Handel's Messiah. And it was just one of those things that was like, man, I've heard a few of these things on commercials Mm -hmm. or, or whatever it would be. But it was just blown away with it. And then fast forward um, through my master's studies when we were working on lots of choral orchestral repertoire and then to doctoral studies whenever I started at Southwestern where DJ and I were in school together, we sang Messiah every school year at least three times. Uh, we would sing wow. it with the, the Fort Worth <laughs> Symphony in the hall. We would sing it uh, a couple of times on campus with a variety of uh, orchestral members, whether they be from the symphony or pickup um, uh, musicians. And so that means I sang it nine times in three years. And um, (laughs) it was one of those things that just got in your blood. And Mm -hmm. one of those things that you really came to love and, um, and find new things about every year. And then fast forward to now, uh, I just conducted it for the first time with my choral ensembles this past December. And cool. so it's one of those things that kind of came full circle for me and um, has been a very pivotal piece in my development as a choral musician and as a believer. So if not all nine of those performances at Southwestern, for at least six of them, Aaron and I sat next to each other. Right. <laughs> so we, we we had our own play-by-play uh, of all of those performances. And, and it, it's it's so true. It, it is a journey hmm. from being on the choir side, singing the piece, to being on the podium side. 
conducting the piece. I, mm. My first exposure was was probably as an eighth grade choir singer being called up to sing with the high school choir because they didn't have enough tenors. And, and my voice probably hadn't changed fully. Uh, and so I could sing those high notes, perhaps. But in high school, we we sang, uh, we, we would sing, and the glory of the Lord, glory to God, for unto us a child is born, and the hallelujah chorus at Christmas. Mm-hmm. Our, our, our schools in the hometown where I grew up in Paris, Texas, would come together um, and do this big Christmas concert together. And as a matter of fact, the very first time I did Messiah, uh, we did it with a, a man named Charles Nelson. Charles Nelson is a legendary choral figure mm. uh, in North America. He was the brother of Byron Nelson, who was a legendary golfer. Uh, but he was a bass baritone uh, mm. professional singer and conductor who sang with Robert Shaw and sang with, with all these big names, Messiah and other works. Mm-hmm. But to to be thrown into it as a high school student and to study it uh, as as an undergraduate choral music major and then to study it at the master's level and then to sing it and study it mm-hmm. all over at Southwestern together and then I conducted it my first time with my choir in 2017 Christmas 2017 mm-hmm. and to be to be very honest the the piece had lost a little bit of its luster Mm. Um, having sung it all of those times, I, mm. I think the, the beauty of it had had sort of gotten lost in repetition uh, of singing it, you know, umpteen bajillion times. <laughs> but the first time you pick up that baton to give the downbeat on the overture on the podium, it it it, it was a new work. It was a fresh right, uh, all over again. And I'm really grateful for that because it, it is a piece that that, that shapes the way we think as choral conductors and as church musicians and as Christian musicians and as Christians, it shapes all of those things. Yeah. Um, it, it's a substantive and important, important piece of music in my life. Wow. It's that's really, awesome. I, I was, I was just going to say, um, I, I spent nearly eight years in, in various choirs through high school and university, and I never sang it once. Uh, so that's kind of, I feel like I've missed out on something. <laughs> I feel like I've missed out on something foundational in terms of being a, a you know, in a choir. But um, but we did see it live uh, in 2019. Uh, the, oh, Cara, correct me here. Scottish Royal Orchestra. Royal Scottish National Orchestra. Royal, yes, there we go. Um, and that was that was fantastic. Really, really special. It was on the, actually it was 2020. It was the, first week i think they do it like right after Jan- january 1st um every year they perform the whole thing i think so all think three so. hours um no it must be condensed it was actually now i don't remember now i don't remember it might have been three hours there was an there was like an intermission and i feel like it but it didn't feel like three hours if it was. Well, that's what's most important. <laughs> yeah. I was like, oh, man, <laughs> this is going to end. It might have been a condensed one. Uh, I'll put a pin in that one. I'll come back to you. Um, I'll ask my husband. Yeah, I was just going to say, like, if I'd been able to play music like that when I was in orchestra, I wouldn't have hated orchestra. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, it's also really encouraging that you guys didn't really have that much musical background, um, like especially you, Erin, when you were younger, that you came into music later, because like we look at you and we're like, oh my goodness, you're a doctor of music, but you know, you don't have to be a, a prodigy from age four to love music. No. Um, so in some ways, Handel might be a household name, but I'm going to admit, I don't know a ton about him. So um, could you maybe tell us a little bit about his musical background and about just his life in general? Sure. So Handel um, was born uh, really close to Leipzig. So we think about Leipzig being Bach country. Um, uh, Handel was actually born just north of um, Leipzig and grew up there had a father who he, he was his mother was his father's second wife and so he was much younger than many of his siblings and his father you know if you think about folks that you know um who you know they may be a tag along sibling they get a lot <laughs> different life than say their older <laughs> siblings and so Handel was in kind of that boat and mm -hmm. was able to uh sit under some trees that he did not plant in many ways and mm -hmm. so he was able to not only gain um education in music through his uh, his brother and some other folks in his life, but he also was able to get some significant training because his father was high up um, in the regional government and uh, in um, the court there. And so he was expected to study law, just like a lot of affluent folks during that mm -hmm. time. If you're going to work, you're going to study the law and you were going to read uh, there. And so what ended up happening is he had several folks uh, in, in his corner that said, no, dad, you need to let this guy study music. And so he did. And he continued to grow as a musician. And by the time he was a teenager, he was serving as uh, a, a church musician and a Calvinist parish there. And so got some experience doing that. He was studying music theory, composition, violin, keyboard, all the essentials. Mm -hmm. And then um, he, uh, after he was about 17 or so, he moved uh, uh, up north and um, actually began working for one of the only state operas in uh, the Austria-German uh, area. And he worked there and grew there and began to build a network. And so he developed lots of connections and mm -hmm. grew as a composer. So whenever he got there, he was composing primarily for keyboard and for uh, strings. And then as he was working for the opera and playing for them, he was like, oh my gosh, this is great music. And he really mm -hmm. began to be a writer of line, of vocal line, and thinking about how does the voice work and how can we write for that? Mm -hmm. um, and then the hotbed for um, music, particularly for opera, was we've been saying he's been influenced by opera, was Italy at that point. And so mm -hmm. um, around the turn of the century, he moves to uh, Italy, experiences a lot, um, both in the area of opera and oratorio and sacred music and um, is just in a frenzy of growth and development and connection and this sort of thing. And, um, and, and so he grows and begins to write just feverishly as, mm -hmm. as everybody who is in their uh, really exponential stage of development, he's going through one of those. Mm -hmm. and, um, and he uh, begins to write particularly in opera and sacred music. And then um, comes back and he's back in the area in Germany and, uh, 
and gets a, a job working for as a court musician. And it's just great. He's finding an opportunity to make money and write and begin to, to develop some of his skills. And as soon as he gets hired, he says, I need to go to England. And so he goes to uh, to London for uh, about a year, year and a half and begins to take all the things that he's developed in Italy as far as writing for opera and writing oratorio and writing, beginning to write sacred music. And he goes there and he spends a year and a half and writes while he's there um he stays an extra overstays his welcome welcome basically <laughs> and his employer back in uh in germany is pretty insistent that he he get back well mm -hmm. push comes to shove and his employer becomes the king of england what uh, and <laughs> crazy crazy right um he becomes the king of england comes over and then handle basically makes up with him and they uh, form a strong relationship. And then his writing becomes even more directed towards opera and eventually oratorio and, and kind of <laughs> expands. And so that's where we see him whenever he writes uh, Messiah, sets Messiah in uh, in the 1740s, early 1740s. And so we see this development. Later on in his life, he goes blind. For about the last seven, eight, nine years, he's blind, and so he can't see what's going on. And during mm -hmm. what we'll talk about later on as, uh, as this Messiah revival around 1750, he's blind. He's not mm -hmm. there. He's, his connection with everything is emotional, and it's aural, but it's not visual any longer. Wow. And, um, and so we see as we'll talk about later on again, um, he has a big revival with his music after he passes. And then the mystique of Messiah comes alive. Um, and so that's kind of how he did uh, a, a really bird's eye view, uh, a survey of Handel's life. Wow. You, you made an interesting comment, Cara, asking, you know, how, how much do people know about Handel? Invariably, if you ask the question, um, how many composers can you name of just <laughs> Joe average on the street? Yeah. You know, you're going to get Beethoven. You're going to yeah. get Mozart. You, you might get Bach mm -hmm. and, and you might get Handel. Handel would probably be in that second, second tier of most recognizable mm -hmm. names. But what I don't think most people realize is without a doubt, they have heard Handel's yes. music, whether whether it's the water music um, that's been in every commercial and every type of commercial on TV. If they've watched the wedding of Princess Diana, it's mm -hmm. Zadok the priest, the coronation anthems as they're coming down the aisle. I mean, th the music of Handel is everywhere. But but sometimes, you know, he was born the same year as as J.S. Bach, 1685. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, Handel actually outlives Bach by almost a decade. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, Handel can get lost in the, the, the Bachs and the Vivaldis and the Buxtehuda and, and all these mm -hmm. other giant names in Baroque sacred music. But, but it, in, in hearing Aaron kind of, kind of lay out that 30,000 foot perspective, not thinking too heavily in, in putting all your eggs in the basket with Johann Sebastian Bach as Handel grows, as Handel progresses in time, so grows Baroque style. Mm. Correct. Uh, 
the the whole genre of opera explodes wow. uh, largely because of Handel's pen and mm-hmm. and style moves from this stately um stuffier style of music um the orchestra is small uh, they're not as not as likely to be um you know just joe player off the street very very professional but the orchestra grows it gets bigger new instruments technology develops the opera orchestra gets bigger the opera overture as its own item becomes a genre when when mozart comes onto the scene mm-hmm. Um, you, you can use the chronology of, of Handel's work as a, a sort of a, a gauge to look at the de- development of music in the Baroque period. And, you know, he, he wrote some sacred things early on. Um, there's a piece that's sort of um, beginning to come back at least into favor in, in, in scholarly circles and talking about it, the, the Brockus Passion Mm-hmm. You'll, you'll hear people writing about it, or you'll hear um, the Chandos anthems or a Te Deum. Um, but really, that that line of, of 1741, uh, it, it, things change in the oratorio world. For mm-hmm. sure. Um, and, and again, Handel is the genesis mm-hmm. uh, behind that. He sets the table for Haydn. He sets the table for Mendelssohn, even though the oratorio is sort of supplanted mm-hmm. by opera as, as the years go by. Mm-hmm. Opera owes a great deal um, to, to handle. Yeah. Uh, and it's sort of with all of that background landscape that this monumental monolith of a three-hour sacred work uh, comes onto the scene. Yeah. Wow, that's really that's really interesting. Just, I mean, obviously, like I said, I think I think Handel is a is a household name in some regards, uh, but I I didn't know kind of his impact in on this entire kind of not one part, but like that entire period of music. Um, and hearing that is really exciting because of how much we um, love this piece. I did check. It was the full three hours. <laughs> it was the full three hours that we uh, that we saw um, at the Royal National Scottish Orchestra. And I would totally be murdered if I didn't say this, but my husband was actually born in the same place as, as Handel. It's Halle. Halle, right. Yeah. yeah. That's cool. Yeah. When people ask him where he's from, he says, um, I was born in East Germany um, in this place called Halle. You probably never heard of it, but it's where Handel was born. <laughs> so, um, DJ, you mentioned there are some other religious works that uh, that Handel um, kind of did early on. Would you say that there are any kind of other significant contributions that he made outside of Messiah that are worth noting? Or would you say those are it? Well, I, the, the oratorio and opera, uh, he, yes, his instrumental music was important. Uh, yes, it made him money. Uh, yes, it <laughs> kept him composing between the times he was writing opera and the oratorio. Um, but I, I, I don't think it's it's a, a far cry to, to say that his most significant contributions were the two O's. 
you know, mm-hmm. opera, opera and oratorio. You know, now in the choral world, uh, and Aaron can tell you this because we both talked about it, how much we like the coronation anthems mm-hmm. um, and other pieces that he wrote, but they're just, they're simply not as popular. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I mean, you go to YouTube and type in H-A-N and see if Handel's Messiah isn't one of the first three things that comes up. And that mm-hmm. tells you mm-hmm. uh, the immense global popularity of that piece. Mm-hmm. Now, it didn't start that way. Uh, he, he, Handel saw a little bit of that revival. But and this may be somewhere where you want to go later on. You know, It's not until Mendelssohn comes around that there's a, another revival uh, for uh, Messiah uh, on the scene that sort of postures it for the future success that it has a hundred years after Handel's long gone. Mm. Um, so that, that's a long roundabout answer um, <laughs> to say, nope, opera and oratorio. <laughs> Aaron, would those, you, those uh, little things, <laughs> I think, you know, I think for the, for the everyday household listening or even, you know, what's programmed the most often, it's it's for sure uh, Messiah. Mm-hmm. And you might get Israel and Egypt every now and then. But beyond that, for those of us in the choir world, it's you're still going to end up coming back to um, programming probably the coronation anthems. The Chandos anthems are awesome also. But you really get, I think, Handel's uh, the beauty and the grace of Messiah on this really little tightly compact uh, piece for these uh, coronation anthems. And honestly, DJ, the one thing I would say, though, if you think about this, one of the things that you'll still hear on commercials fairly often is the beginning, the beginning of Zadok, right? Yep. Because that's one of those Zadok. It's just <laughs> uh, visceral, honestly. Yeah, it is. So, um, so I think you will hear that, and folks won't know what that is, but they'll right. say, Oh yeah, I think I have heard that. Yeah. You know, isn't that a part of Messiah? No, <laughs> right, right. You know that that that's kind of what you get with that. But um, yeah. I would say that if any of those other smaller works are more readily heard, it would be Zadok, mm-hmm. um, and those coronation anthems are absolutely worth your time. If you yeah. don't have the full three hours to listen to Messiah, yeah. uh, listen to uh, you know a, a fourteen-minute uh, coronation anthem or nine-minute coronation anthem. And, um, and you'll still get a lot of the same drama yep. just in a very small uh, package. Wow. R- r- rhythmic and ha- the rhythmic drive and the harmonic drive that fuels the coronation anthems are the same thing that fills Messiah just on a much Absolutely. smaller scale. And, and I, I thought about this after I'd already waxed, waxed on about all of those things. The instrumental genre of the Concerto Grosso Right. Um, are, have been important in the, the keyboard world and the, in the string world um, because they're handled. Mm. Uh, I would argue that they became more popular after the fact of Messiah's popularity mm. um, than they would have ever become on their own. Mm. But those are those are another important contribution to the, the overall oeuvre from Mr. Handel's pen. So why, why do you think his works have stood the test of time? It's kind of a broad question, I know, but uh, I think <laughs> I think there were lots of composers over the centuries and, you know, they had their various moments in the, in the spotlight. But, you know, here we are, uh, 21st century, 
and it's still a staple um, in in many orchestras, in many you yeah. know concert halls across the world. W- what do you think about what do you think about Handel that has actually made his music stand the test of time? Well, I'll take an angle that that may not be as obvious, but it, that's really superficial. Handel lived an incredibly long life for someone who lived when he lived. Mm. So he was able to compose over a long period of time, you know, 1685, 1759. Um, people just didn't live that long. I mean, what was what was Mozart when he died? 30, 33? 30, yeah, yeah. Really? Very young. Um, that young. Beethoven was early 50s, late late 40s, even though he looks much older in every depiction. <laughs> every bust you see, he looks like he's old, you know? But you, you see a picture of Handel, and here's this stately, older-looking statesman sitting at the harpsichord uh, with with his hair and, you know, judicial permage. Uh, there's probably a better way to say that. But, but <laughs> he, he covered a long period of time, and so that yeah. that's an easy... An easy but oft overlooked answer, I think, to why um, they've hung around as long is because of the sheer number of output that that he had. I guess he had longer to develop as well, to develop his skills because he lived longer. I think one of the things, it's just the fact that Messiah is the thing that everybody knows by handle. Sure, there are a ton of other things we've covered that. But Messiah had such an impact. We were talking about this earlier, DJ and I, um, and I think even in this so far is that um, the texts are biblical in nature. They come straight from the scripture, Hmm. but there is no specific reference to the actual resurrection. Hmm. So you don't have the actual resurrection plucked out, detailed from the gospel, right? Mm -hmm. And so there are opportunities for non-believers to find things in there that connect with them. And uh, I think that the bigger thing that I was thinking about this afternoon or this morning with this is Messiah is so connected with Christmas Mm -hmm. and culture around the globe celebrates Christmas, whether it is sacred or secular, it's still Christmas. And we're going to have, you know, our, <laughs> our uh, fruitcake and our, you know, whatever else. Uh, what is it? Is it mince pies over there? Is that what yes, you got? Unfortunately. Okay. You, wassail. You have, yeah. Wassail. You got to have that. And the thing about it is Messiah has become so wed mm to Christmas, the mm. cultural expression. Now, mm. does every household listen to it like it listens to Mariah Carey? No, they don't. <laughs> but they do. Many, many homes cannot experience Christmas without listening to Messiah. Same thing in my home. Same. Listen to Messiah, the whole thing, all three hours, multiple times, mm. you know. And so for the fact that it is directly associated with a season that we celebrate every single year, I think there has to be some element of that cultural association with Christmas and that desire for that home feeling, that feeling of safety and security Mm -hmm. that comes with the the holiday season. And Messiah is intrinsically a part of that for so many people. It's a part of that warm blanket you return to every November and just wrap yourself in it. And and it just brings brings you comfort. Something else you, you talked about how, uh, there is there is no resurrection mentioned. There there's barely a gospel mentioned, mm, but right. for the nativity section, 
And it's short. It's three angelic sentences and a chorus. Mm-hmm. That's it. And, and it's that the short bit from Luke 1 and 2. But the reason that's important is that comparing Messiah to the, the St. Matthew Passion, the St. John Passion of Bach, you couldn't have two more different pieces. With Bach, it's it's Jesus in your face. Mm-hmm. There's there's no skirting around it. Whereas with Messiah, you know, a non-believing performer, a non-believing listener can find it a little bit easier to ignore the underlying message mm-hmm. in Messiah than you can in any of the the Bach big works, the B minor, the Passions. Uh, the mm-hmm. cantatas, I mean, they were circled around the Christian year. Um, and so that those are those are two divergent um, paths around around why. I mean, he could have just as easily included, we were talking about this. It would have been so easy for Jennings to include something about Pentecost. I mean, it's just ripe for a Holy Spirit aria with a fiery base to just let it rip a time or two. Um, and he could have called it Christus. You know, but he didn't. He called it Messiah mm. because it's centered um, in the Old Testament prophecies. Mm. Um, and that that I think is a contributor to its its lasting nature. I mean, Mendelssohn Mendelssohn tried to write an oratorio called Christus and it was a flop. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, his oratorio about the life of Paul was more successful. Paulus. Mm. Um but I mean, he Handel was wise. He he knew his audience. He knew the commercial side. He knew not commercial in the sense that we use commercial now. Mm-hmm. He commercial in the sense that music was part of the social life in the public square all yeah. the time yeah. in a much different way than it is now. Not commercialization, but 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 he knowing knowing what people craved, and you know for for lack for lack of a better way to put it putting people in the seats, you know, he, he knew what he needed to do to get people from every walk mm. to engage with the work. And that, that goes right into the people on the stage singing it or playing it with him as well. And he, he knew what he was doing and calling it Messiah. Yeah. Then and now, I think yeah. if we, if we don't take this into the modern context, then I think we're missing something because I think you're dead on the money, DJ. That's the lasting power. We still want right. to sing it. You know? People still want to sing it. And and honest, uh, you know, whenever I'm talking to my friends in the symphonic world, they're saying every year they put it on Facebook, you know, oh, here we go for my 33rd Messiah. Every year. <laughs> they know that Messiah pays the bills, but it's still great music. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It is still music that is rich with uh, informing power mm-hmm. and uh, fulfilling power in the performance. Yeah. So, and let, let's, let's also, because this podcast does talk about hymns, mm-hmm. um, not, not ignore the fact that handle handles hymn tunes a la Joy to the World, Antioch, mm-hmm. or uh, the St. Thomas tune. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, there are tunes that uh, they, they evoke imagery of Messiah. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, and just like I just like I can't do Christmas without listening to at least three different versions of Messiah <laughs> over the course of the season, I can't do Christmas without Joy to the World. Mm. Um, and you know, musically, put them on, put Glory to God on one side and Joy to the World on the other, and see what doesn't line up. <laughs> it's very very true. Um, before we wrap up, Cara, did you have any other questions for them? comments uh no i'm just basking in it all yeah we're like (laughs) so simple and you guys are just like showering (laughs) us with so much information that is so cool my my flatmate does sing in a choir and uh, they sang zadok at christmas just before christmas and she was saying she loves it but um the breathing is hard work in parts (laughs) (laughs) she's like i thought i was gonna pass out at one point (laughs) yeah Well, and especially if you find, uh, you know, some British conductor that when they get to the third movement, they want to just go like gangbusters <laughs> after 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 the, the the melismas in the first movement. The next thing you know, you're I know the people rejoice. <laughs> you know, you just you know, gird your loins and get on your horse because this thing's about to take off. <laughs> um, but but yeah, even you said this, Aaron, and you're exactly right. The first chord. When the choir and even the even the opening figure, it is so iconic. Mm-hmm. It's it's every bit as iconic whether people recognize it or not. As bum 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 bum. You're so right. It just endures. I mean, even to the fact that one of the ways that I wanted to say this is. It connects with everybody. I love in my spare time to smoke meat, whether it's barbecue, pork, beef, whatever. So I watch a lot of YouTube channels. And one of the YouTube channels that I watch is called um, Meat Church. Oh, yes. And one of the main things they do, they play the Hallelujah Chorus. I know. For the Meat Church, you know. (laughs) Right down here in Cedar Hill, Texas. That's right. You know, they've got got meat on the the spit, and you raise it up, and it's Hallelujah, you know, and... (laughs) And it's we're smoking meat here, but Handel is connecting with every Joe <laughs> that watches that show. Well, and not just that. In some sense, it's broken into pop culture because, for sure. I mean, okay, it's you're you're watching some game show, and it's time for the bonus round. And our winner today with fourteen thousand points is Joe Schmo. Bum 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 bum. I mean, it's it's out there. It's in it. it it's everywhere. It has pervaded culture Mm -hmm. uh, in that it's everywhere it's Mm -hmm. everywhere Mm -hmm. yeah most definitely and that's why we're going to be really excited to talk to you next week more getting into the details of the song Um, but we're going to have you stick around just for a bonus question where we're actually going to talk about what's the best time of year really to sing this song maybe it'll be Ah. a debate Um, but until then where can people find you guys online I'm on Instagram. Uh, you can check me out, see all my flowers, my smoked meats, and my choir life. You can find me there, Aaron Rice Ten on Insta. I'm I'm on Insta as Man with Baton, all one word, lowercase, and my same 
username for all things since Instant Messenger dropped in 1994. <laughs> nice. And uh, and you can find music at fearless the number four you.com or djbulls.com. Great. Thank you guys so much for your time. We'll have all those links in the description. Go check them out. Really cool dudes. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you guys.